you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I thank you for these women and their faithfulness. We've been doing this study for two years, and it is just a mark of your faithfulness and your goodness, all that we have learned and all that we've seen in your word, and we are thankful for that. And we pray that today you would be honored in all that is said and all that is done, that you would guide and your spirit would work in all of our hearts to be hearers and doers of the word and to receive your teaching and that you'd help and enable me to teach it accurately and clearly and we pray this in christ's name amen okay so if i would adjust this i apologize it's a little um longer than normal it's hitting me in a different spot all right turn to the book of revelation chapter one and i can't believe we're here i can't believe we are coming to the end it's exciting and a little bit nerve-wracking, too, because it's Revelation. But as you're turning there, normally, when I start us off, I start us off with a review. I cover where we've been and where we're going. And today, our review is going to be very, very short because the book of Revelation has over 400 allusions to the Old Testament. And Walt Kaiser says that at um, it has 400 allusions to the Old Testament at the rate of some 20 allusions per chapter, and almost one illusion for each verse. That's an incredible amount. Some scholars have it up to 500. Some think direct references around 250, but um, all scholars agree that there's just a huge amount of overlap with the Old Testament. And as we go through today's lecture, you're going to see it's going to be a natural review. We're just going to be connecting the dots. As we go through, you're going to see, we're going to say, look at this prophecy in the Old Testament and how it connects to Jesus. And just over and over and over again, connecting the dots between the Old and the final book of Revelation. So I just want to remind us, if you remember when we started this year, I told you about a sermon I'd listened to called God Begins, God Wars, and God Wins. And that was the outline, and he, and he talked about the entirety of scripture, the Abner Chow in that lecture. And that, to me, was a really helpful little way for us to do our review today. In Genesis, God began, remember? And he created a perfect world, and in Genesis 3.15, man fell, and God has been warring against sin and judging it since that point. And we're going to see the culmination of that war um, next week in our study, well, most of it. Um, the next two weeks, I guess I should say, in our study, and then he wins, right? And, he, and we know that he's won and he's got the victory from his death, but we're going to live in the full um, joy of what that will look like when God reverses the curse and we live under his perfect rule in this, the new heavens and new earth. So that's where we're going. So we're kind of in that second part where God wars. We're coming to the end of the war in our study, and um, last week we had looked particularly at those closing books of the canon. Remember we said that First Peter through Jude, Peter and John... They're the last apostles, and they're writing kind of their, their, their final warnings of the canon of Scripture is closing, and they gave us three things to focus on. One, to trust the Word of God, right? That it is sufficient, it is sure, it is true, and we need to believe and apply and obey the Word. And then we have to stand firm the persecution that's going to come, because we are strangers and aliens in this world. The world will not like us, and we have to stand firm the persecution that's coming and to remember to watch out for false teachers, and really, we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation that we're really picking up those three threads right away, that they need to be holding to the word, enduring persecution, and some of them have not been resisting against these false teachers. So that's where we left off um, yesterday, um, last week, and that's where we're kind of going to pick up this week. But before we jump into the book of Revelation, um, I don't know if you guys have been nervous about studying it. I have been very nervous about teaching it. I remember two years ago thinking, oh, I have two years. <laughs> but I was so busy with the other teaching, I didn't get ahead <laughs> like I thought that I would. And so I'm like, oh, here we are. <laughs> and yet I was reminded that you would never read the last chapter of a book and expect to make sense of it. We've been preparing for this for two years. 
Like we have been studying for two years and so we don't have to go into this nervous and we have been studying and we are ready to read the glorious ending. But there are different ways that people see how Revelation comes together in the end. There are different approaches and views of it. And so I want to take just a minute, if you guys have your handout on the different views of the millennium, we're just going to do a brief overview. And, and all my, as I was studying this, I had three different books, I think, that I read all had the same joke in the beginning. And as they were talking about the millennium, they say a lot of people want to call themselves pan-millennialists because it's all going to pan out in the end, right? And while that would be kind of nice to do, I'm like, man, all of you, same joke. Here we go. Um, but it's, it is because people don't really want to wade into these waters a lot, and I don't blame them <laughs> after this study. But I want you to just hand out, we're not going to go through it in depth. I'm just going to do a high overview of it. I gave it to you so that you can reference it later. So you should have one handout that has a kind of a chart of the four major views of how the end times can play out, and then you have just a written handout that looks at the four major views. So the first view of how it all comes together in the end is called premillennialism. And premillennialism is the belief that Jesus is going to return before the millennial kingdom, okay, before the millennial kingdom, and he will rule over the present earth for a thousand years in order to fulfill all of God's unfulfilled promises. Now, premillennialism divides into two camps. There's historic premillennialism and there's dispensational premillennialism. Historic premillennialism sits on the eschatological, that's a, the word for end times, eschatological, sits on the eschatological spectrum between all millennialism and dispensational premillennialism. So really quick, um, if you were to study, there's kind of two approaches to scripture and one would be called dispensationalism and one would be called covenantalism. And if this, there was a line, you could say this is dispensational, this is covenantal. Most of the people we know are somewhere in here. Like we don't know very many people who are on the far extremes, but those approaches kind of inform where you fall in the millennium view, okay? So that's all we're gonna talk about with that. So when they say, all millennialism, that would kind of fall more on a covenantal spectrum, and then dispensational falls on the dispensational spectrum, okay? So they share historical premillennialists and dispensational, both agree that Christ is going to return before the millennium, okay? Historical believes with, shares with all millennialism that Israel's future is slow, solely as part of the church, whereas dispensational premillennialists make a divide between the church and Israel because they, one, emphasize the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to ethnic national Israel, two, they see Daniel's 70th week as part of God's purpose for Israel, and three, they place the rapture of the church before the 70th week or the seven-year tribulation. Historic premillennialism agrees with amillennialism in uniting the rapture with Jesus' return, whereas in dispensationalism, like we already said, the rapture comes before that. And there are other points of disagreement, but that's kind of a high overview. Even as I say that, within those two camps, that is a very broad definition, and some historic premillennialists do believe in a history, in a, in a, a promise for ethnic Israel, excuse me, and some dispensationals might, there, there's a lot more crossover and a lot more blending than I could put into this. So all of these beliefs are more nuanced than these broad categories are, but the broad categories stand as that. So then that's premillennialism with historic and dispensational. Then there's postmillennialism, post meaning after, and so Jesus will return after the millennium. They believe that this present age is the millennium. So they view it as a time period, not as a literal thousand years, during which God's kingdom is expanding in the world through the mission of the church. And when Jesus comes, history will come to an end, and the eternal state will begin in the new heavens and new earth. And then all millennialism, all means no, but adherents reject that there's, they, they, wouldn't, they don't think there's no millennium. They just also agree that we're in the millennium right now. And again, that it's a time period, not a literal thousand years. Jesus is building his kingdom today through the church and the present spiritual kingdom. And at the end of the age, he will return and destroy the earth and establish the new heavens and the new earth. So I wanted to cover that because all of these fall in, 
into conservative evangelicalism. These would all be people that we respect, people that we believe, probably, I bet that we could maybe even find people who adhere to all of them in this room, even. So these are not, you know, some, there are some beliefs about the end times that we would say are wrong and are you know, unacceptable. These are not them. These are all within our circles of what we would say is scriptural. And I wanted to explain that because our lessons have all come from the dispensational view. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to be teaching the premillennial dispensational view for two reasons. One, just co cohesion with the lessons. And two, because that's what I was raised in and that's what I was taught. So I don't know, I didn't have time to study all the other views. I don't know them. This is what I had been shown from scripture. But I met with Pastor Brian and Pastor Jonathan because everything that we do in, in women's ministry, we want to come up under our leaders, right? And so Pastor Brian and Pastor bon Jonathan both fall on different parts of the spectrum. They wouldn't fall in the dispensational premillennial camp. And I don't ever want to teach anything different than what they want. And they were very comfortable with us doing the study this way and teaching it this way. And Pastor Jonathan said, this was a third tier issue. This is not something that we divide over. And so I want you to turn in your little handout, if you have it, to famous adherents. So you have um, people who are well known who ha hold these different views throughout history. So if you look under dispensational premillennialism, you have John MacArthur, J.M. Boyce, Dallas Seminary. If you look at historical premillennialism, I believe that's the kind of predominant view at Southern Seminary. You have John Piper, you have Wayne Grudem. If you look at postmillennialism, you have um, Charles Hodge. R.C. Sproul, all millennialism, you have Luther, Calvin. Um, and the reason I point that out is those men all support each other in their ministry. You know, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, while he was living, they were strong advocates for each other. They spoke at each other's conferences and churches and endorsed each other's books. They were close friends. This was not a dividing issue. And so I point that out, not that we're trying to follow this person or that person, but just to show that this is not something that should cause division in the church. And also to tell you, I'm not teaching this to be argumentative or to cause a problem in any way. Um, just because, like I guess I said, this is what I understand and this was the particular study that we picked to go with. So with that, that's about all we're gonna do as far as wading into the more complicated stuff. <laughs> and, and I also wanted to kind of end on focusing, there's a lot we actually agree on between those few views. And we're doing, even Revelation in four weeks is a high overview of the book. And so I want us to focus on what do we all agree on? And if you look, at your handout too, at the beginning there's the Baptist faith and message statement on the end times. I'm not gonna read all of that, but I'm just gonna point out that we all agree, and these are the things we all need to agree on. There's a hill to die on in the end times, it's this, that there is a second coming, okay? That Christ is coming again, we all agree. And that there is a bodily resurrection, that you are going to be raised either to life with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, or to judgment, and we all agree on that. And that there is a period of judgment, that God is going to judge this earth, and he's going to judge Satan and the demons and sinners, and they were going to go to a literal hell. The doctrine of hell has been under great attack. We believe in a real hell and a real state of eternal punishment. And we also believe in a real heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ will reign, where the curse will be reversed on a new earth. And we all agree that there is one way that you're saved, regardless of your views of Israel and the church, you all agree that everyone is saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And those are the main points as we go through that we all agree on. So that's why I wanted to kind of end um, our overview of different views of the millennium as we come to the book of Revelation. And we're not going to really dive into any of that today, but as we go into next week's lesson and the third lesson, I wanted to cover it before we got there. And actually next week we're not meeting, so in two weeks, next week's spring break. So with that, we're going to do a little intro into the book of Revelation. And like we already covered and said, this is the ending of the story. This is the glorious and good ending of the story. And 
we can't separate it from what's come before and from the whole if we want to understand it. It was written by John. He's the last living apostle at this point, we believe. He's old, and he's on the island of Patmos, probably because Domitian, Domitian who was the emperor at that time, the Caesar, was um, probably because he wouldn't worship him. And so he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and that is where he has this vision. And he's writing to, to churches, to seven churches who are suffering persecution. And John MacArthur says that there's two emphases in the book of, of Revelation. And the first is that Christ is going to come in his future glory and rule with his saints. And I think that, to me, is going to be our main emphasis today, that Christ is going to come, the glorified Christ. We've seen him as the suffering servant. We have seen him as the one who died for our sin, and now we're going to see him come in glory. And that is a main emphasis in the book of Revelation, Christ and his glory. And we're also going to see the judgment of unbelievers and eternal punishment. So Christ in his glory, judgment and eternal punishment. And as we begin, you know, maybe the Lord understood that we were all going to be kind of intimidated by this book because in verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. It's the only book that starts that way. Read this book and you're blessed, right? And keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So you are blessed for reading and hearing this book, and there's a sense of urgency about Christ coming in. If, Christ, if the time was near 2,000 years ago when John wrote the book, it's even more near now. My kids the other day, I don't know what made them think about this, but they're sitting on the couch with me like, Mom, you mean Jesus could come at any time? Like, like now? Or now? Or now? And I'm like, yeah, like he could. I mean, obviously he didn't because those, but yes. And they were just blown away. Like any second is potential. Yes, it is. The time is near. There's urgency. So we're going to look today at three points. First, we're going to look in chapter one at the vision of Christ. And then we're going to look at the um, con- commendations and criticisms to the churches. And then we're going to look at Christ in the throne room, the one who's worthy to open the scroll. So we're going to start with the vision of Christ. So read with me in Revelation, and we'll just continue reading in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of, on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then jump down with me to verse 12. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as the snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So we see this incredible picture with Christ 
And right away, we're going to have to start making those connections with all that has come before. So when it says that from him who is and who was and is to come, that is a picture of the Trinity, the triune God who is present. And then when he says he is the firstborn and the faithful witness, Psalm 89, verses 27 and 37 said that's who the Messiah was going to be. And when he says he's the firstborn of the dead, that's what Corinthians 15, 20 says of Christ. That he is going to be the ruler of the kings of earth is all throughout the whole book of Isaiah and the specific promise of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. That he loved us and freed us by his blood, again, is pictured all throughout the sacrificial system laid out in Exodus and Leviticus, but Eric taught it to us so well through the book of Hebrews two weeks ago, right? All the book of Hebrews. That he's going to return on the clouds, vision from Daniel 7, as we've covered so many times. They're going to look on him who they pierced is from Zechariah 12, 10. Right, when Israel is going to look to their Messiah and the world is going to know that he is all that he said he was. That he is the Alpha and the Omega. It's from Isaiah 48, 12. And John MacArthur says, the Alpha and the Omega are the first and the last letters and all that can be said is between them, representing all knowledge. He is omniscient. When Jesus came the first time, the world mocked and rejected his knowledge and wisdom. That will not be true the second time. That he was the son of man. That was the picture of him again from Daniel 7. That he is clothed in a robe with a golden sash. Who wore the golden sash? The priest did. Again, Hebrews, he is the great high priest. And he's wearing that sash from Leviticus. And where it described his eyes and the legs. And that's all the division of who he is in Daniel chapter 10. That his face, the glory from his face, that is the picture from the transfiguration, transfiguration in Matthew. That he is the ancient of days whose hair is white like wool. Is from Daniel 7 again. That his voice is like the rushing waters is the vision from Ezekiel 43, 2. That his mouth is the two-edged sword is from Isaiah 49, 2. You see, all those, we've been studying it, we've been connecting it, we've been seeing it. This is when, so when he says this, we're supposed to know all of that because we've studied it and the Jews knew that this is the one. This is the glorious king. This is Christ, not coming this time as the servant, but coming as the king. And so that brings us to our second point, which the, is the commendations and the criticisms to the seven churches. So read with me in verse 20. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So first we have to remember, when we have this vision of Christ, if you turn back to verse um, 12, um, it says, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. So this is a picture of Christ in his church. Christ in his church, and again, John MacArthur just lists the, the things that Christ is doing for his church, that who he is and how we just saw him described is doing. Christ is empowering, interceding, and purifying the church. He is speaking authoritatively to the church. He controls the church. It's in his hand right? He protects the church and reflects his glory in the church. John MacArthur continues, says, the lampstands symbolize churches as lights of the world. They are golden because gold was the most precious metal. The church is God's most beautiful entity on earth. Seven is the number of completeness. We're going to see that number a lot through the book, and it's the number throughout scripture of completeness, perfection, um, totality. And so here, the seven churches symbolizes the churches in general. They were actual churches in real places, but are symbolic of the kinds of churches that exist through all of church history. So we looked in, in, the, in the lesson in depth at the churches. We wrote out what their sins were, what their condemnations were, what their rewards were. And so I want us to do a more big picture sweep of what's happening with the churches today in our talk. 
and there are seven churches listed, and three of them are both praised and criticized. Two were only criticized, and two were only praised. So we're going to start looking at the first three. We have Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And they're praised because they worked hard. They endured persecution. In Ephesus, they resisted false teaching. They persevered. But they also lost their first love and tolerated, in Pergamum and Thyatira, false teachers. In Philadelphia and Smyrna, they are both commended because they endured persecution. They held fast. They held true, even in great persecution. Smyrna was one of those cities that was particularly devoted to emperor worship. And so the persecution for not doing that would have been great there. And they're commended. But Sardis is dead. It's so dead that the few who haven't stained their clothes don't categorize it as alive, right? It is a dead church. Only a few remain. And Laodicea is lukewarm and blind, trusting in their riches and in their comfort, thinking that they're okay. If you look at this, the problem comes down to two eyes, idolatry and immorality. Right? The false teachers bring in substitutes for Christ and lead to licentious living. Idolatry and immorality is the repeated problem throughout all of the churches. But every time, God calls them to repent. And in Ephesus, he says, remember. Remembering is part of repentance. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember the deeds that you did at first and do those again. Remember and repent. Every church is given an opportunity but the church of Ephesus, I think, is the one we know the best. We've been memorizing Ephesians, but think about its history. Priscilla and Aquila founded it. Apollos taught there. Then Paul was there for three years establishing how the church should run. Then he left Timothy there, and the apostle John finished his ministry to the church at Ephesus before he got sent to the island of Patmos. That's a rich history, right, of all these people pouring into it, and that they had lost their first love. And if you go to Ephes Ephesus today, there's no church of Ephesus, right? And he says your lampstand could be removed now. Churches can not exist. Churches can be kind of blotted out in a sense because of persecution. Eventually, there's only so many people you can kill before you've killed them all, right? But there also can be churches that die because of lack of faithfulness. But God says in Matthew that he will always build his church. So there's always a church somewhere. There are always believers somewhere. God is always working in his church. But you don't want to be the congregation or the part of the church that takes the false teaching and dies and falls away. And so the question is, if these represent churches for all the church age, what kind of church is Fisherville? What kind of church, if you don't go to Fisherville, is your church? Where do you find yourself in this list? Because churches rise and fall on the obedience of their members, right? Are you going to follow the word? Are you going to stand against false teaching? Are you going to submit to your elders and your teachers and your leadership in the word of God? Or are you going to be disobedient? And so where Fisherville or whatever church you're a part of is in 5 to 10 to 20 years depends on the faithfulness to the word of the church. Ephesus, like I said, started well. We don't want to have, an, but we want to end well as well. But we're also seeing in the book, it's popular, again, there's great promises to those who overcome. And we know from 1 John, who are the ones who overcome? Those who are Christians right? John says that we have overcome the world when you, and Christ is always going to complete the work that he has done in you. True faith will persevere to the end. Christ will build his church. And so that promise gives us hope. And remember, these churches are under per persecution. Abner Chow says, what do you tell a person who is suffering under pressure and persecution, who lacks passion, who, on, who is on a doctrinal or moral decline, who is dead inside, fruitless and fake? What do they need to hear? They need to hear about the end. 
And that's what we're going to see in Revolution, in, in Revelation. We're going to see the good ending and the judgment that's to come. And so that brings us to our third point. We've seen Christ in his glory. We've seen that he is in his church and he is working. We've seen his warnings to the churches. And now we're going to see a vision of the throne and of the Lamb. So turn to Revelation 4 if you're not already there. And we'll read starting in verse 2. It said, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the 24 thrones were the 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And we're going to jump down um, to verse 6, where it says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And this vision of Christ and this vision of what's happening in the throne room of heaven is that the angels and everything in heaven is proclaiming that Christ is the hero, that he is the hero of the story, and in his sermon, Christ is the only hero, Abner Chow, and I'm going to be relying heavily because he's, he does such an excellent job of pulling the prophecies and the visions together that I'm going to lean heavily on what I learned from that sermon, so I'm giving him credit right now, and I'm going to take his outline. He gives three reasons why Jesus alone is the hero the hero in heaven, the hero of this redemptive story. And he says, because Jesus alone accomplishes redemption. So like our first sub-point is Jesus alone accomplishes redemption. And as you're looking, you see this phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and has come. That should sound familiar to us. That should sound like Isaiah chapter 1. So turn with me to Isaiah sorry, 6, um, verse 1. Isaiah 6, verse 1. It said, in that year, King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So the first thing we know is this is a vision of a future event, because in Isaiah, the whole earth is not full of God's glory. In fact, if you turn over to Isaiah 2, and if you remember from our study, idolatry is a major problem that is continually addressed in the book of Isaiah. Idolatry, pagan worship is continually happening. But God says that one day the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. And Abner says whenever God's glory fills anything, it is a physical, visible, tangible filling. In 2 Chronicles 7, 2, when the glory filled the temple, it pushed the priests out. They couldn't be in the temple with the glory because it physically filled it. 
is a physical presence. And so when God's glory fills the world, it's going to be a tangible, physical filling. And Isaiah's world is filled of idols. And so first we're going to see that God is holy because he is going to judge sin. Listen to Isaiah 24.1. In Isaiah 24.1, he says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And in verse 23, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. So, and there are many more verses about this, but for time, and because we're going to see it in the next couple weeks, God is going to empty the earth. He is going to, in a sense, decreate, we're going to see in the judgments, and he is going to judge it. But he's also going to fill it. He's going to be holy because in Isaiah 11.9, it says he's going to fill the earth with his knowledge. Isaiah 11.9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And in Isaiah 19, he says that he's going to redeem. Remember, Pastor Brian referenced this, and he talked about how the Egyptians and the Assyrians and Israel, they're going to be called my people. Those whom he had judged, those who had been under his great wrath, they're going to be called his people. And sadly, I lost the reference. I had it written in my first round of notes. But there's also a verse in Isaiah that says, God will make Israel holy. God will make Israel holy. And so God is a holy God because of his nature and his character, as we've seen throughout the whole book of the Bible. And we have seen that he is going to be holy in his judgment and wrath on sin. But he's holy because he can make the unholy holy. He can redeem when no one else can. In verse 8, it says, in Isaiah 24 and 25, it talks about how God is going to redeem. And in verse 8, it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him that he might save us. So what are the angels proclaiming when they say he is holy, holy, holy? They are proclaiming how amazed they are that God can do so great and marvelous and ma massive a redemption. That the victory is won, it's won forever, and it is his. So he is holy, holy, holy. And then we look and we see that he is seated on the throne high and lifted up. Okay, so we see why he's holy. We see why the angels are proclaiming because of the, the marvel and the amazement they have over his great holiness. And now working backwards, we see he's seated on the throne. And throughout Isaiah, there are many things that are lifted up. And it's always negative. You lift up your hearts, God's going to oppose you and bring them down. You lift up your hands, you lift up your eyes. Nothing is to be high and lifted up until you come to Isaiah 52.13. In Isaiah 52.13, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The servant is the one who is worthy to be exalted and lifted up. He is the one who is sitting on the throne. Seated on the throne is Christ. Seated on the throne is the Messiah. And this is the vision that Revelation is. Remember how we said it's all one vision with different angles on it? Isaiah's vision, Ezekiel's vision, Paul's vision, and John's vision here in chapter 4. The scene in the throne room that is proclaiming Again, quoting Dr. Chow, the angels are proclaiming this world is a dark place. It is filled with idols, wrecked by sin, cursed by God. It is dark. But there was a hero, and he went into the darkness, and he bore the shame, and he bore the wrath of his own father in his body on the tree in order to make the unholy holy, in order to deliver those who were destined to die in destruction and save them. He did this in order that the curse would be banished from the world and the night would be no more as God's glory fills the earth. 
and the angels proclaim that he has finished that work forever. That's what's happening in this vision. That's what is being proclaimed in heaven. But it's not just that. If you turn back to Revelation 4, oh, actually, you don't have to. Just turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Did you notice those four creatures that were described? That should have also reminded you of Ezekiel because those are the same angels that are described in Ezekiel chapter 1. And as we come to Ezekiel chapter 1, God in this vision is declaiming, this is our second point, that Jesus alone fulfills relationship. Jesus alone fulfills relationship. And so when we see these angels, we see that God is proclaiming his agenda. They have eyes, so they can see everywhere, right? They can see everything. God can see everything, and he can respond. We also see that they can fly in every direction, right? Because God, and that's also why you have a sphere with two wheels, because the two wheels make a sphere, make a globe, make a ball. So unlike a steering wheel that you have to turn, balls just can go wherever, right? And so... We see that God can see and he can respond. He can go up, down, east, west, north, south, however you want to. He can go everywhere and he can see and respond. It's a picture of that in these angels. And he's announcing that God's agenda was to dwell, know, and have relationship with creation, to love his people. This is a vision, again, as Dr. Chow says, of God's presence. And then we have a picture here. If you look in verse 25 of Ezekiel, verse 25 says, um... And there came a voice from above, the expanse over their heads. That expanse is a word firmament. It's also found in Genesis. It's the firmament. So what do we have? We have this vision of the expanse or the firmament. We have a globe. We have creatures, right, four living creatures. This is a microcosm of creation. And again, God is saying that the agenda he had at the beginning is the agenda he had at the end, that he wants to be a God where his, he's with his people and he has relationship with his people and that it's unhindered. But that's not really how it works, right? Because of sin, because of the fall. And you come to Ezekiel 8 and what do you see? You see that Israel has brought idols into the temple. The temple is God's house. The temple is where God's glory dwells and they are worshiping idols in the temple. This was described as the same thing as a spouse ha- committing adultery in their home in front of their spouse. That is the nature of this sin. That is the heinousness of all sin and the nature of all sin. That's what Israel's doing. And God's glory departs, right? God turns them over to what they chose. And he leaves them in judgment and exile and shame and abandonment. But remember, it was self-imposed. It was, they deserved it. They asked for it. They were the ones who were worshiping the idols. And now Israel's in exile and they're facing exile and they're wondering, has God abandoned us? And it's kind of funny that they could wonder that when they were the ones who first abandoned him. But what does God say? Turn to Ezekiel 34. He looks on his people with compassion, and he sees that they are sheep without a shepherd. And in Ezekiel 34, 11, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been sacrificed, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on, the day, on a day of clouds and thick darkness and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And then turn over to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. 
when you have a heart of stone, you are dead. You're not living, right? Every time. Every time someone has a heart of stone, they are dead. But God is going to give you a heart of flesh. He's going to make you alive. How great does God want relationship? He's going to reach beyond the grave to make the dead living, to be the good shepherd who brings you home. That is what Jesus accomplished in the cross. He alone fills, fulfills relationship. He loves you and has the power to bring you home. And so the third aspect that we're going to look at of why Jesus is the only hero, why heaven is proclaiming his greatness, is because he alone reigns. Turn back to Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, he alone reigns. And we see, I could get to Revelation chapter 4. And we see in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed, and they were created. And that takes us to Daniel 7. You knew we were going to end up there, right? You knew we were going to end up in Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, chapter 14, verse 14, excuse me, he says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. This is the same song, right? This is, the, this is answering the question, who is the one who has dominion? Who is the one who is going to rule forever, the supreme ruler? It is the one who is the son of man, who came to the ancient of days, who was given. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And remember, we looked at the four, um, throughout the book of Daniel, just higher review, we see the, the, the statue, right, and the four parts of the beast. And we just see that there's these four kingdoms. And what are they all trying to be? They're trying to be the one with dominion. They're trying to, Nebuchadnezzar's trying to make everyone bow down and worship him, right? And he's trying to make everyone under his rule, these worldwide empires, that have, and yet they all fall, and they all crumble, and they all fall short. And again, if you went back to the beginning of this vision in Daniel 7, in, in two, verse 2, it says, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That should take us back to Genesis 1 and creation. And four great beasts came out of the sea. Again, creation of the land and sea, and then we have animals, and then you come down to the Son of Man. What is this? Another microcosm of this is creation. And again, God is saying the agenda from the beginning is the agenda at the end. Nothing has thrown God off course. Nothing that happened in this world has changed his plan or his agenda. The nations can try to rule, but they can't. Dominion belongs to one man. So turn back to Revelation, and this sets us up for Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, we are looking for the one who is worthy. John says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every nation and tribe and people, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Who is worthy to open the scroll? 
Jesus is. Why? We've seen it from the beginning, from the beginning of Revelation on, because he is the fulfillment of everything God has planned. And why are they singing a new song? Again, Dr. Chow says, that tells you, they're singing a song to tell you why God loves this moment. Because he didn't just want to declare that his son is the hero. He wanted everyone to recognize it, to accept it, and to understand it. He wanted people to know and embrace the fact that his one and only son is the only hero and that he is the only way and that that is how it will be forever. God made everything for this moment to showcase his son the way he has always been the only hero. This is what is, we're going to, sorry, this is what we're going to see as we go through the book. There is judgment, there is tribulation but Christ is going to come gloriously, and this is our Savior. And for those who believe in him, he's the one who brings us home, right? That's where we're going to be in the new heavens and earth. He is the one who loves beyond the grave, who can give a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. But for those who reject this Savior, there is judgment. I've heard that everyone really goes to hell for one sin, the rejection of Christ as Savior. You can commit a million sins that condemn you, but everyone is offered repentance, and rejection of him is why you go to hell. And that is what is the terror of this book, but for those who believe the hope of this book. So as we go, remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to these churches in persecution, in trials, in very real life difficulties. And this is the vision to comfort, to motivate, to strengthen them for their endurance and perseverance. And may it have the same effect on us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the only hero, the one who has dominion to rule forever, who fulfills relationship, and who can make the unholy holy, who can redeem. We thank you for your word and that we are blessed for reading it, but may we also be those who do it, and not those who read and deceive ourselves, but those who read and obey, and so prove ourselves to be your children who love you. Please be with us as we're going to be gone in the next two weeks. May it be a time of refreshment, and may this be an exciting time for us to study your word and your very good ending. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.